What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. And you can create the life that you desire. You don't have to box yourself, but you have to go, you have to do the work to figure out what resonates and what works for you. With Komari, like when you're holding something and you're like, oh, you know, if it's not a resounding yes, pick out the things that make you feel like a million bucks, like the one that, you know, you feel awesome in. And that should be your barometer of joy. That should be the level of joy that you are surrounding yourself with. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past few years, you've probably heard of Marie Kondo. You might have read her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, or maybe you binged her Netflix show during lockdown. And while it's led to thousands of memes about what does or does not spark joy, it also became part of our pandemic consciousness. Stuck in our homes with nowhere to go and less space to live, work, play, learn, and teach, we became so much more mindful about what we needed or didn't need in our lives. Today's guest is Rebecca Jo Rushdie, Malaysia's first certified KonMari consultant, which means that she coaches clients in tidying up the KonMari way, Marie Kondo's official method. In our conversation, I learned that KonMari isn't really just about tidying at all. It's about letting go, letting go of not just our stuff, but also mindsets, habits, and behaviors that no longer serve us. We begin our conversation talking about how Rebecca first started her journey into KonMari. I was pregnant when I came across the book. So that was nearly nine years ago, actually. When you're looking at it from the perspective of what are you keeping in your life? What are you keeping joy and purpose in your life? So this is why there's a lot of positive psychology infused in the KonMari method as well. Yeah. So you're looking at it. I mean, it's such a simple switch, right? Like, so even where you're sitting right now, can you see like, okay, rather than looking at it from like, I want to throw, 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 then you're looking at it from like, okay, you know what? This cup brings me a lot of joy. My friend gave this to me, you know, oh, the computer, it brings, it has purpose. Right. And then, so when you're able to align yourself with what you define as joy and purpose, then that's why the book is called the life-changing magic of tidying up. You start to apply it into the other areas of your life, all the non-physical aspects as well. So then that's why people go through these, like, if you go deep enough, then it can have these massive transformations in your life. Like how for us, you know, we actually Komari, the city that we lived in. Okay. Tell me about that. How did you do that? Where were you living at the time? We were living in Hong Kong at that time. And, um, I had been avoiding this question for uh, quite some time because I always thought, okay, this is the roadmap that I should follow. I spent majority of my childhood in Hong Kong. So I, I always felt like, okay, this is just the way things should be. Right. Um, and it didn't spark joy for my husband, but I always just kind of avoided it as well. Like I just didn't want to have those confrontations and conversations about it. And then I felt strong enough to be able to face the difficult conversations. So then we sat down and we actually had to think, what are the values? What kind of place do we want to raise our children in? What kind of community as well? So for us, it was really simple. We're just like, okay, we want to raise them in a warm and loving community and somewhere where they'll be able to learn Chinese as well. Like we just want them to have that foundation too. So we just felt like, you know what? Life is too short. Let's just take a gap year. 
we'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, we want to be able to see our friends and family as well. So we took, um, we took a family sabbatical and that was for an entire year and it was slow travel. Mm-hmm. Every single place we spent about a month in, we went to Taiwan, Japan, Kenya, Ireland. We went to UK. We went to various parts of the U S and also Canada as well. Yeah. And it was during that trip, like nine months into the trip, we had a potential job offer to come to Malaysia. Okay. And we're like, okay, let's take a detour, check it out. Like it was never on our radar. We always thought that we would go to Taiwan just because we have family ties there. And then, um, we came here, we're like, okay, like it actually takes all the boxes, you know? And then we're just like, let's just take the plunge. That's how I'm here. So I always tell people that if it weren't for the fact that we started our Komari journey, then I wouldn't actually be here right now speaking to you. I like that idea of of slow travel and taking time to get to know a city. Mm -hmm. But what was it like? Because how old were your children when you did this family sabbatical? Oh, gosh. Like they were, my eldest wasn't even three yet. And my youngest was about nine months old. (laughs) That. That is the, not crazy, but that is the amazing thing for me because how did you manage? I remember when my kids were those kinds of ages Mm -hmm. and when we traveled anywhere was with a mountain of stuff. So how did you do this? Gosh, we, um, I mean, obviously you can't really pack light, but then we just try to uh, get things local wherever we want as well and just adapting. And then we, it, it wasn't like we were on a big budget or anything. Like we, it was totally budget travel. So we were just staying with friends and family as well. You know, so a lot of times like they were able to help us if they had it or they didn't have it, we'll just be able to borrow things as well. You know, like high chairs and car seats, all those kinds of things too. <laughs> and you just make do, you know, like as at the end of the day, it just reminds me that um, human beings were so adaptable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, we're so adaptable mm-hmm. and we don't actually need very much. much. Exactly. <laughs> and what was it that was not working for you in Hong Kong that made you feel like you needed to conmari your city? I just didn't see, I think like, you know, when we looked at it deeper, we were just, um, that sense of community wasn't there. We wanted kids to be able to have a childhood, <laughs> ultimately. And I think it's really hard to achieve that, especially in big cities, big metropolitan cities, you know, like you're being, you have that a lot of external stressors, right? Like in terms of, Oh, you need to um, get into these schools, you know, like even from a very young age, it's all instilled in order to be successful in order for your in order for your children to succeed, you need to like, you know, start applying for schools when they're three years old. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, this is just, it just didn't feel right to us. It wasn't in our vision of our ideal family lifestyle as well. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about that, right? Like in the, in the Komari method, like envisioning your ideal lifestyle, that's one, that's the second step of the Komari okay. method. There's actually a few steps. The first step is commitment. You need to commit yourself, which is applies to anything in life. If you want to get healthy, you want to have a better sleep hygiene schedule, you got to commit to it. It's not just wishing or wanting. And then the second step is actually the visualization aspect as well. Like just actually going deep into what feels 
true to you because we're all unique individuals. Yeah. You know, like I'm sharing this, but this is unique to our family. Like some, for some people, they'll be like, this is outrageous. You know, like (laughs) it does not resonate with them at all. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm interested to just go through those steps in a little bit Mm -hmm. more um, detail because you said it's about commitment. Mm -hmm. It's not wishing and hoping. And I think that's a really important point because many, many people miss a step when it comes to things like committing to things or also manifesting. There's a lot of talk about manifesting. And for a long time, I was very skeptical of this because to me, manifesting sounded like wishing and hoping. So tell me a little bit more about that first step and how you make this commitment and how you make this commitment something that's going to to last rather than you know wishing and hoping. So obviously there's like a plan to it, right? So it's not just, oh, okay. Like I I meet a lot of people. They're always like, oh, like I wish I could have a tidy home or, you know, I wish I could lose weight. And I was like, yeah, but it does. Let's make a plan. Yeah. That you, it has to be action driven. It's almost like, you know, we talk about manifestation, right? Like it's also, I see a lot in, um, in religious communities too. Just pray on and pray on. And the power of prayer is so, I mean, that we can't diminish it, but there has to be action followed by it as well. Because, you know, like, um, you, you can say, oh, but I prayed about it. God didn't answer my, my request and stuff, but it's like, but what are you doing to get to that goal? Like you will have all the resources available to you, but you also need to commit. You need to take that first step as well. It's very, yeah, that that's interesting. I was talking to somebody about this recently and she said, God isn't your genie. You don't just get to pray and pray and pray and your wish is granted. Um, You need to be able to demonstrate that you are committed, that you yourself are taking on, yeah, actionable. 100%. And, you know, I think a lot of times nowadays, especially in the day and age that we live in, um, I find it so fascinating because whatever you want to learn, we live in a time where literally anything that you want to learn, anything that you want to up-level, you just have to do a quick Google search, right? So, and you can find a course for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, but it all comes down to whether or not you want to, what's the barrier? You know, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy as well that prevents things from happening too. And you have to have that sense of self-worth as well. Um, to invest in yourself. It's a very introspective method of tidying. It's not surface level. You know, we've all seen that, you know, there's so many different ways of tidying, but the reason why I'm attracted to the Komari method and why I took the plunge to become a consultant is because it has, it has this power to transform you because it actually, you know, the more we practice it, the more we embody it, then we will be able to apply it into all areas of our lives because essentially it's a letting go practice. How do we let go effortlessly? You know, it's going to be challenging at times, but then we can learn tools like to make it less of a challenge. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And gratitude is one of the core components of the Komari method. So we let go with gratitude. I'm not sure if you watched her show, but you know, it, uh, like everyone kind of made fun of it initially. They're like, why do I have to thank all my belongings? And the reason why is because whatever circumstance, whatever we have in our life, it's either a blessing or a lesson. So if it's a blessing, you're grateful for it, right? You have it in your life, but if you're not happy with it, you want to let it go. There's, you can still take away a lesson from it. 
So let's just apply it to clothing. If you're letting go of a clothing, you're not just flippantly just letting it go. You can reflect on it. Okay. You know what? This color is not suitable for me. You know, or like, Oh, you know what? This is from a fast fashion store. The quality didn't last. Hence, that's why I have to let it go. I only wore it twice. So what, rather than just like, okay, donation pile, then it's like, when we take that moment, that pause to be like, why am I letting this go? You know, what has it taught me? Yeah. Then we're able to be like, okay, you know what? I now know that I don't want to support fast fashion. I want to buy quality. I want to, you know, buy local brands um, and support sustainability as well. Or, you know, something as simple as the color, right? It's like, oh, I now know that this color doesn't suit me. And these are all the little things where, you know, the way that I'm saying it, this is the way that we should be approaching it. It's very neutral, but you will be surprised. Like we all have that negativity bias within us. So a lot of times people will be like, oh, this color is so ugly on me, right? So, or like, I'm too fat for this. When we do it the proper way, it actually rewires our brain because the way that you speak to yourself is far more impactful than how other people speak yes, to you. Totally agree. So it's a way that we're practicing, you know, like, so whenever I hear people, they'll be like, I'm too fat for this. I'll be like, no, pause, reframe that. Mm-hmm. I now know that this style is not suitable for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes the personalization away from it, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. That's like a like a mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. practice where you that examine, is there really truth there? No. Is there a better way to say this that is actually truthful? Um, yeah. So then let's move on to step two, because you also were talking earlier about definitions of success and designing the life you want to live. I want to talk about that a little bit more because I do think that's so important when it comes to things like defining purpose, defining, you know, um, how you want to spend your time, how you want to live your life and, and letting go of definitions of success that don't serve you. You know, it's deep, deep, deep conditioning. It's, it's generational, right? Yeah. And sometimes, unfortunately, a lot of times we're born into it as well. You know, like even the fact of like, okay, let's say that you're fa- you come from a family of doctors and then, so from a young age, they're being conditioned like, oh, you have to follow my yeah. roadmap or they might, you might have parents who are projecting their unfulfilled dreams. And so maybe because they didn't have, uh, maybe they didn't have everything that they wanted growing yeah. up. So then they project it onto their children, even though that's not what is true to them. And so I, I love working with children as well because of this, because it actually helps to amplify your voice mm-hmm. and that their voice matters and they're able to define what joy and purpose means to them. Yeah. And so when we're going into the whole ideal lifestyle as well, like even when I was um, stepping into this new chapter, this new career chapter, which is two years ago. So I started my business during the start of the pandemic. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So exactly two years ago. And I was just like, you know, like I took the course. I was just like, you know what? Are people going to think I'm really weird? You know, like all those kinds of stuff, like so many thoughts going through my head. And I was just like, you know what? So I worked through it. I was like, you know what? It makes me really happy. If it doesn't work out, at least I can say that I went to New York, which was where the consultancy was held. Okay. 
this is pre-pandemic. Now everything's virtual. So even that in itself was such, I'm so grateful for that I was able to attend one of the last in-person uh, consultancy courses. Mm-hmm. And it's in New York. Like I went to, I went to university um, ah. in New York as well. So I was able to go, no kids. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> so I was like, that it's already a win. Yeah. You know? And then just starting the business, I was like, you know what? Like I have no idea how it's going to be, but it feels true to me. Mm-hmm. So I had quite, um, quite a lot of different careers. So I studied design management at Parsons in New York. Okay. So I got a business degree from an art school. So, you know, like I, I've, I've done like events, PR, luxury retail consulting as well for developers. And, um, and then I also had my own business, which was in retail, like baby gifting retail okay. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my step into entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And then when we moved here, I took a, I took a break. So we moved here and I was, I felt really lost. Like I felt like I had no purpose. Yeah. And that was, that was tough because this is where I had to dismantle the notions of your value is tied to how much you're making, what career, what role you play as well. Yeah. You know, and then because I felt like I wasn't contributing financially, so I was really hard on myself. And that's because of the years of conditioning. Yeah. Because, you know, we go to, we attend all of these schools, you work your way to attend certain universities, and then, you know, you have the so-called roadmap. Yeah. And then when you become a mom, obviously everything changes, right? Like not like your career, your body, your marriage, everything. It's it's huge transformation. And then so um, I was finally in the space of, okay, the kids are in school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. So I explored a lot of different things and having the Komari um, method by my side was really helpful because when you try things, then you're able to, like we said, we're able to take away from it, especially when it's not good experiences as well. And even when I've had extremely toxic work, uh, work environments in the past, I was able to find the gratitude and lesson yeah. behind it. You know, I I often share this, especially in my corporate workshops as well. You know, I can be grateful for those experiences now. It wasn't overnight, but I can be grateful for it because I now know that I will not allow myself to be treated that way. Yeah. I now know what kind of people I want to work with. And so when we're able to do that, it actually loosens the grip of, um, of resentment. Yeah. Because when, even though the matter it's been done already, but if we are still lingering in the past, we're not letting go of yeah. it, then it's still taking up space in your precious mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's why it's a, it's a letting go practice, right? It's, we practice with our physical objects that we have in our home, but then we can start to apply it into our thoughts, our behavior, our, our habits. Mm, that's interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. You know, I sat down with you to have a conversation about minimalism, but you've applied this to mental wellness also. So so has that practice of letting go and being intentional with your belongings allowed you to live better mentally and emotionally as well? So um, I just want to start off by saying that it's not a silver bullet for mental health as well, but it is absolutely one of the tools that we can use to feel whole again, you know? Um, so I've suffered from depression, anxiety since I was 11 years old and because I didn't have the tools back then. So I went down the wrong path, right? Like 
um, finding love in all the wrong places, having very, very low self-worth, lots of suicidal ideations as well. And to the point where that's how my brain was basically hardwired for close to 20 years of my life. And I've been to, I've been seeing therapists for nearly 20 years as well, but it wasn't until I really started to harness like, you know, how do I want to approach it? So I've, I've been really fortunate to find a therapist who was, who committed to working with me without the use of medication because that was my ideal life. Like I was, I don't want to be on medication. And so um, co-marring, obviously, it's, it played a huge role because you, when your space supports you, you don't have this external stressors. Yeah. And you start to be able to align yourself with what you define as joy, yeah. too, what's true to you. I really encourage people, especially if they, if they are on their healing journey, to ensure that their space is a sanctuary. And this is, this is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about because I know that it can work. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not shunning medication or anything like that, but it's just that that doesn't have to be the only option. No, for sure. It doesn't. Certainly all of these mindfulness practices have a really important place in your Mm -hmm. toolkit. But let's go back to the method itself when it comes to your belongings, because that's where it starts, Mm -hmm. right? We start with our stuff, and this allows us to eliminate anything that is not part of the life that we want to design from Mm -hmm. from our space and our worlds. So there's also a lot of ritual in KonMari, and we've talked a bit about the gratitude practice, thanking our belongings, but what about the tidying festival? So the tidying festival, which I find really cute as well. So in Japanese, um, it's Katatsuke Matsuri, which is a direct translation tidying festival. Okay. And again, because there's, there's a lot of positivity, positive psychology infused in it. We want it to be something that is, that is viewed as, um, something to look forward to. Okay. You know, like rather than like a lot of times, like again, conditioning, like when we're younger, maybe we were scolded, we were told to berate it, to tidy up and clean. So people have this aversion to decluttering and tidying. It's something to look forward to. It's a once in a lifetime activity. Like, of course, there's going to be maintenance after. So the maintenance period, then we call it joy checking because we're constantly evolving and um, changing as well. So things that suited you, even just six months ago, one year ago, it might not serve a purpose anymore. So we're constantly joy checking, but it won't be as, it won't be as big of a, you know, like a feat as it was with the tidying festival, because you, you do that to set the foundation and the groundwork. And, and then you get that shock in your system as well. If people have watched the show, uh, what's what you'll see the famous scene, which is, you know, the mountain, the pile of clothing. And oftentimes why that is so powerful is because we're visually triggered. But when we see that mountain, you know, like we're all guilty of it. We've all been in those situations where we're like, I have nothing to wear. I have nothing to wear. But when you see that mountain of clothing, I would say 99.9% of the time people will say I have enough. And then they'll be like, oh my God, like, why did I buy yeah, so much? I have too much. Why do I have so much? I have too much. Exactly. Yeah. 
And so this is where, you know, you have that shock to your system. So then this, these are, these are like the very subtle changes where we can start to change our, our purchasing behaviors. You know, it's a, it becomes a mindset shift away from this sort of scarcity mindset. Like I have to let go of things. I, you know, I have to get rid of stuff. I'm not going to have enough to a like Mm -hmm. abundance mindset. I already have plenty. I don't need anymore. And that kind of mindset, viewing the world and what you have and your resources as plentiful rather than scarce, I think makes a very big difference in, in how you manage to, to hit whatever goals you're trying to hit in your life. Yes. And it's a, it's a constant practice, right? Because our brains, uh, it's a muscle. So it's, it, we have to constantly work it out. It's not like, oh, you know what? Like you just do like a few sessions with a trainer yeah. and then you're fit. You, it's a lifelong practice, but it gets easier because you work your muscles. And then, so you're able to be aware of the triggers and, you know, like you'll be able to be more sensitive mm-hmm. to certain behaviors as well and patterns. Yeah. Because especially when it comes to shopping, uh, most of the time it's, it, it can be a, it's, it can be a form of addiction, yeah. right? Especially nowadays, it's so easy, like one click yeah. purchase. And I used to be addicted to shopping. Yeah. And especially because, you know, living in places like Hong Kong, it, you're living in a giant yeah. shopping mall. You're literally bombarded. So when I was able to really go deep into why I was yeah. purchasing, you know, like to feel worthy, to feel that high from shopping as well. And then now with with all the amazing um, neuroscience research too, we're able to understand more about how our big, beautiful yeah. brains work. <laughs> and then it makes it easier to accept and change. So tell me about that. Like, tell me about how we rewire our brains when we're thinking about purchasing decisions. What do we need to think about or what kind of behaviors do we need to check? Mm, so that's a great question. I, I find that when we do it the Komari way, so you will get a mental audit of everything that you own. Already. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Because you see everything in one shot yeah. as well. And so this actually helps a lot. Like, you know, even just things like in the pantry, right? Like you're not going to be making repeat purchases. You will be surprised. Like I've been to a lot of homes where they forgot that they had purchased something and then they'll purchase it again or they can't find yeah. it. And then they'll purchase it again mm-hmm. too. Um, and then this, it, even during the pandemic, you'll see, right? Like we saw a lot of panic yeah. buying, especially when it came to grocery stores too. But if we actually have a clear audit of what we have, then we'll, you'll, you'll have that abundance mindset of like, I have enough, you know, and rather than being driven by fear. Yeah. One of the practices that I like to do, especially when it comes to online purchases, is waiting on your wants. Yeah. So put it into the cart, unless it's an immediate need, you're like, okay, this is something I need right now. You know, I need to replenish this or replace this then go ahead. But then if it's something more, okay, it's not urgent, then just wait on it. And then sometimes you'll just be like, okay, like I either, I waited on it and I really want it, purchase it. Um, or just be like, oh, you know what? I put it in the cart, but actually I don't need it. And it saves you a lot of money. I made a commitment to myself this year that. I want to make a capsule wardrobe. I want to love every item of clothing in my wardrobe. And I want to always feel like I have something to wear. And I also don't want to purchase from fast fashion brands anymore. Mm -hmm. So what tips can you give me? Like 
how does the KonMari method help you design a capsule wardrobe where you always have something to wear and, and all of your purchases are things you really enjoy? Oh, I love that. And I love how you're, you're so intentional as well about what your goals are for the wardrobe too. And this really helps to guide you. So when you take everything out and then you, you know, you, it's, it's a trip down memory lane, right? Like sometimes you'll be like, Oh, okay. You know what? This is something that I wore in my twenties, but does it represent who you are now and who you are becoming? Like the objective of Komaring is that so we are surrounded by joy and purpose. You can say confidently that every single item in your house serves a purpose and it brings you yeah. joy. So even with clothes, sometimes there's sentimental value to it and that's fine. If you're not sure, you either keep it with confidence or you let yeah. it go. And you don't have to feel like it's this huge dramatic change. You know, like if you're, if you're not ready yet, it's fine. Honor those mm-hmm. feelings. You know, like maybe it's like a dress from college years, yeah. right? <laughs> the party yeah. dresses. And it's like, it brought you a lot of memories. Like you'll never wear again, but you're just it's sentimental. You're not quite ready and it's fine. Keep it. And then, so when you're joy checking, when you're doing the maintenance, then when you feel like, okay, you know what? Like I wasn't ready two months ago, but I'm ready yeah. now. Sometimes people would be like, oh, are you going to force me to throw away everything? And I was like, that's not the method at all. I'm there to guide you. It's more like, you know, being a personal yeah. trainer. <laughs> To hold you accountable, but you make the decisions yourself. I can't define joy for you. It has to come from you. And, um, we do it together and there's no shame in asking for help. I think there's a lot of stigma around that as well. People feel like, Oh, I should be able to do it myself. You know, just like how we, we hire coaches, um, for various reasons. This is not a basic life skill that we all have. Or you might not have had the best role models as well. So it's not something that comes from home. Just like financial literacy, right? Like these are all things that we should learn at school or like we should know, but we actually don't. (laughs) Um, So sometimes, like I I tell people, sometimes some people, they only need one session. So it's kind of like having a driving instructor, Mm -hmm. right? Like then you know how to drive, then you can just go off on your own. And some people, they're like, you know what? I know how I operate. I need to have someone there with me every single session to hold me accountable. Just like having a PT. Like, it's like, yeah, you know, you can work out, but you also know that if you do it with somebody and you have an appointment, you'll get better results. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I really like this notion of, does this represent the person I'm becoming? Because when I look back at when I was in my late teens and early 20s, there was always this extraordinary amount of meaning attached to stuff. Like, Like Sex in the City, for example, the clothes and the shoes, like particularly these shoes, that was success. They bought those things to reward themselves. But is that me? Like, do I want to be someone whose identity is is tied up in a pair of Manolos? And and that goes back into, okay, do you need it, right? Like, it's so easy to get sucked into it as well. And it's it's an addiction. It can be an addiction, but it's something that people don't talk about as much because it's not substance addiction, right? Like, so a lot of whatever trauma, like, so I was reading this book, um, and it was just talking about like how it can manifest in different forms of addiction, whether it be the psychological, you know, like your, it's like careerisms, like, you know, being addicted to fame or wealth, all that kind of stuff. And then also the material addiction too. So, which is like, you know, the shopping, the, um, Netflix binges, the eating binges, 
but those aren't things that land you in rehab. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so it's, so it's just something that's accepted yeah. as well. But then these are all things that we need to go deeper into so that we can let go of its clutches and you can create the life that you desire. You don't have to box yourself, yeah. but you have to go, you have to do the work yeah. to figure out what resonates and what works for you with Komari, like when you're holding something and you're like, Oh, you know, if it's not a resounding, yes, pick out the things that make you feel like a million bucks. Like the one that, you know, you feel awesome in, and that should be your barometer of joy. That should be the level of joy that you are surrounding yourself with. Yeah. And then when you pick out the other things, then you can compare it as well. You're like, Ooh, this doesn't bring me as much joy. Like how come? Yeah. Is it because, you know, maybe it was a mental state of mind. Like maybe it's something expensive. You don't love it. But it was so much money. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. You feel compelled to keep it just because it's designer. <laughs> and then you can just go like, or maybe it's just a mental state of mind. Like you're just like, okay, you know what? I purchased it when I was in a bad mood. Yeah. And it doesn't bring me joy. Um, so then when we're able to realize like, okay, you know what? Like I now know that um, I don't, shopping doesn't necessarily make me happy. Yeah. It's a temporary yeah. high. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like a sugar high or a drug high. You wrote at the beginning of this year something that really resonated with me. You wrote, first you have Mm -hmm. vision, then enters judgment Mm -hmm. and resistance. Next, dedication Mm -hmm. is shown or not. If so, success. Mm -hmm. And I really like that way of articulating the journey that we go through when we're making change often. So when we're in the middle of that judgment resistance phase, and it could be with starting the KonMari journey, maybe it's to do with starting some other kind of journey in our life. Mm-hmm. How do we know that this is something worth pursuing? When you don't feel um, peace in your own home, mm-hmm. your space should be a sanctuary, yeah. not a storage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when it is a sanctuary, then you'll feel peaceful. You'll want to like, cause I often, I, I've been reflecting on, especially during the lockdowns as well. There were people I know people who were like going out every day to go grocery runs and it made me think I was like I wonder what their space is like you know and your space should be supporting who you are and who you are becoming and to be able to support you in your journey as well yeah so and I've worked with therapists um to Komari their spaces you know both traditional and also like in alternative healers as well when you're giving, when you're in the position to give and to serve, oftentimes you forget about yourself. So it's a form of self-care. Yeah. So you have to view it out and you feel good. Like actually it's been proven, like even just 10 minutes of decluttering or just cleaning, like even just washing the dishes, you know, then it will actually lower your cortisol levels. So when we're feeling like, you know, right now we're battling against too much screen time, mm-hmm. right? Like we're, we have this, it's addictive. And it's not just for the kids, but also for us. And so when we're able to recognize, like, you know what, like, I need to take a break, like, from the doom scrolling, then, and it's never ending. And so when we're able to step away from it, then that's when we're able to take back our power. Uh, We can shift our brain from the autopilot into the being mode. And then these are all the tools, right? Like it's not, it, these are the regulation tools. So it's not just like exercise, meditation, like even uh, tidying, even decluttering. 
even just a small area. So it's like once you've done your tithing festival, like just doing small joy checks are, it's so effortless. Like even with the kids, like the other week, you know, I did their shoes with Mm -hmm. them and it took them two minutes to do. That's how fast it is. It doesn't have to be like this huge thing. And then, so you find these, you're able to find these pockets of time to be able to give yourself the self-care it's self-care. I think a lot of times is like, you know, again, yeah. media, they make it sound like, Oh, it needs to be like a weekend yeah, getaway. A spa day. A spa yeah. day. Exactly. Uh, but it's not, I mean, of course it's not as glamorous as like going to uh, going on a spa date, but it is a form of self-care. Like even just like as moms, like of young kids, you know, sometimes it's just stepping away to be like, I need 10 minutes to myself. Yeah. That's self-care yeah. too. So it's redefining it and then being able to find the joy in small moments in all the little things that we have in our lives. Yeah. Already. And that's where, and a lot of the happiness studies as well, people find that it's all about, uh, they find that, Oh, I need to get that promotion. I need to get that car. I need to go on that holiday and then I will be happy. It's when you're able to adjust the way that you see joy and find, seek joy in all the little moments in life. That's when we can truly be happier human beings. Yeah. What about when you work with children? My kids are at that phase now where they really notice the things that their friends have. And, you know, I get a lot of mommy, can I have X or mommy, can I have Y? How do you approach those kinds of conversations with your own kids and how do you help mm. kids simplify? Yes. And how old are your kids, I by have, the way? I um, have two five-year-olds, twins. Oh, yeah. okay, twins. Yeah. So my kids are almost eight and okay. six, so around the same. And so they were kind of they were my guinea pigs. I've been practicing on them. They've been Komari since they were two okay. years old. And what I have observed and what I love about the method is that it was – the, the most challenging thing was working on myself as a parent because a lot of times, like, you know what, you, you might be more judgmental. Yes. Just being like, why are you keeping that? You know, that's broken, you know, all those kinds of things. So we have to hold it back ourselves because even when I work with clients, I also have to be neutral about it. Like, you know, you might guide them with certain questions as well, but it's never like, oh, you shouldn't keep yeah, that. Okay. No, like, because the main practice is that you are holding space mm-hmm. for them and that you are honoring their opinions and that their voice is heard. Kids are actually much more easier to work with oh, okay. because they don't have the baggage that adults have. You know, like a lot of times, like as adults will be like, oh, but you know, it's so expensive or, you know, so-and-so gave it. I'll feel, I'll feel guilty if they ask me, where is it? You know, so on and so forth. It's interesting because around the age of seven, that's when kids start to develop the people-pleasing tendencies. Okay. So they're not living according to their truth, you know, because they want to please their parents, friends, their teachers, so on and so forth as well. I find that when we do the Komari practice with kids, they become more confident. Okay. They know how to let go as well, more effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And um, my bigger goal in this, the bigger picture is that when they become older and they have these, this skill set within them, it means that when they're faced with toxic relationship or working environments, they're able to let it go with grace and gratitude 
rather than feeling like they have to be stuck in certain situations because they don't know how to let go. And then when they have this sort of awareness as well, I find that this is a really powerful self-regulation tool. Okay, yeah. Our space can have a direct impact on our mental Mm -hmm. health. Visual clutter will trigger us. Just by seeing clutter alone. And I'm I'm sure you face it too. When you see your your kids' toys everywhere, you're just like, (gasps) and it actually takes up space in your mental bandwidth. And it will make you stress. It actually has been proven to raise your cortisol levels. So then like, and, and it adds up. Like, yes, you see it, you're triggered, so you're already not at baseline. And then something happens, and then it just builds up. And so when we're able to be conscious of all of these things to help us to be more calm and mindful human beings as well, uh, I find that it will help us navigate the challenges of life a lot more effortlessly. So like with the kids now, you know, like because we don't have that visual clutter, cluttering up our minds, we can focus on what matters most, which is, you know, mindfulness for kids and, you know, teaching them about empathy and all those kinds of things, like all the things that we actually want to be working on. You know, when you said that it helps children with emotional regulation, that really resonated because having a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. for children, I think often um, they can form attachments to things, you know, if they're not feeling... If they're not feeling happy, it could be a security blanket. Mm-hmm. Or if they want to distract themselves, they want an iPad. But this yeah. getting them to to hold something and tell tell you how mm-hmm. it makes them feel, I think might yeah. help them because I, I do worry about this relationship between kids and stuff and how they use stuff to yeah. help them cope with uh with you know bad feelings. Hundred percent, and adults do that too, right? Like we've all been there, and then we now we also understand that because their um, prefrontal cortex is underdeveloped as well, so they don't have that self control mechanisms that are formed in us already, and we barely have it <laughs> under control, yeah. right? So, like, and it starts from home. Like, it start it really does start from home. So, I often I like to also encourage parents like start from yourself first because when you're able to understand the practice too then we can guide them. Like if, if, otherwise it's like, you know, we're just being hypocritical. No, I agree. (laughs) And, uh, and another thing is also, we are the ones who are purchasing for the kids. I still struggle with this, especially when the kids are like, I want this, I want that. And then, you know, your first instinct is you just want your kids to be happy. You want to say yes to everything. But then of course saying yes and being a pushover, that's also very damaging as well. And that those are hard feelings to deal with because, you know, oftentimes like one of the quotes that I loved from a a podcast I listened to last week is your triggers are are a gift because it actually shows you the straight path to your original wound. Okay. And so I was like, that's true. Like, cause you know, a lot of things that goes back to our childhood as well. And, um, for me, my biggest trigger is that when the kids aren't being grateful, when I'm doing everything that they want me, they want me to do, but then they end up still like, you know, focusing on the negative and stuff. And I, I know it's because of the way that their brain is like that helps a bit in terms of accepting it. But if I'm tired, if I'm like, you know, I'm not giving from my overflow, I'm already defeated then that's when I will have my meltdowns. Well, I'll have my mommy meltdowns. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we all have mommy meltdowns. That's basically a job hazard. Um, but what does purpose mean to you? So for me, purpose, actually, I have, I'm a really big Oprah fan. Okay. So I, I've been writing about this um, 
this morning as well. So for me, purpose means like finding meaning in life so that we're truly living and not just on autopilot. Yeah. And what Oprah actually says is there's no greater gift you can give or receive than to honor your calling. It's why you were born and how you become most truly alive. Yes. I am familiar with this quote and I, I love it. I love it too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And there, there really is no greater joy than to be able to help people to see their true potential Yeah, as well. And this is how it amplifies, right? Like we want to, we want to leave the world a better place than when, when we had first found it. Yes. Yes. I completely, I say that that's something that I say all the time. Like if I can just leave the world a little bit better than when I found it, then, then that will be enough. The challenge is figuring out how you, you bring that all together, right? How you align your own personal gifts with your passions to create purpose in your life and in your work and yeah, in your family. And there's that really famous, um, diagram as well, Ikigai, right? Yeah. And that, that's powerful because then you're able to really see that, you know, it's like, okay, what I'm doing makes me a lot of money. Um, but I don't find it fulfilling Yeah, or like, you know what, this, I, I love doing this, but I'm not making any money from it. Yeah. And you also need to make a living. Yeah. And I think when you start approaching things with an abundance mindset, then you realize that if I can, um, you know, follow the chart, the Ikigai chart, and if I can find the center of it, the thing where the talents, Mm -hmm. the purpose, the passion all align, then you will Mm -hmm. be able to make enough. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You will be able to find a way to make enough. Yes. And then you define what enough means to you. Yeah. You know, it's it's the same with wardrobe, right? Like some people, they can just live with like three t-shirts. Yeah. And that's enough to them. And so even with Komari too, you can be a minimalist in Komari, but you can also be a maximalist in Komari as long as you are um, honest about that everything around you brings you joy. Yeah, and being intentional. Yeah, and it's like some people are fashionista. They might work in a fashion industry, so they need a lot more clothes. So it's, it's, not, um, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Thank you so much for this chat, Rebecca. I've really enjoyed it. And no um, problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to start my own tidying journey, not just from real need, because mm-hmm. I think we've also accumulated too much over the past uh, two years, mm-hmm. um, but also because I think it will help. It will be freeing, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Minimalism or, or letting go is freeing. Oh, it is. And then I'm here for you. You know, you've (laughs) always got support. I'm your biggest cheerleader as well. And thank you so much for inviting me. I had so much fun. Uh, Thank you for listening to my rambles too. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you once again for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, can I please ask you to leave me a review? Tell me what you thought, because this really helps more people find the purpose effect and learn lessons from some truly inspirational women. If you'd like to know more about KonMari or Rebecca's work, it's all in the show notes. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.